This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is a podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, uh, and this is the fifth in the series of compilations of voices from civil society that we've been putting out. Um, And in this episode, uh, we are talking to Dan Such from CAST, uh, the Social Tech Accelerator, and also the Catalyst, which is sort of consortium of funders looking at digital issues in civil society. Uh, We're also talking to Dan Flusky, the head of policy uh, at the Institute of Fundraising, about some of the challenges facing fundraisers right now. And Dan obviously is a returning guest to the podcast, so he's got a very you know exalted position. Uh, and finally, we're talking to David Ainsworth, who also works uh, at Cast- uh, Catalyst these days, but um, has been around in the sector for a long time as a journalist and kind of commentator on charity sector issues in the UK. And I'm talking to him about some of the thinking he's been do- doing about the financial issues affecting the sector. Um, so without further ado, let's go into some of those conversations. Uh, as with all the other ones, I'll be releasing them also separately um, so that you can listen to each individually. Um, but I will be back at the end of this episode for a bit of housekeeping and tidying up. But let's get on with it. So this conversation is with Dan Such, the director of CAST, the Centre for Accelerating Social Technology um, and also Dan is involved with Catalyst, which is a collaborative of philanthropic funders who are interested in issues around technology and sort of digital civil society. And Dan and I caught up to talk about the work that he's been doing with with Cast and Catalyst, uh, helping to utilise data and technology to combat COVID-19 so far. And we also talked about some of the sort of opportunities and challenges that have been presented by the enforced shift to digital that many organisations have been going through. So here is Dan. Okay, great. I'm here with Dan Such. Hi, Dan. Good afternoon, Rodri. Uh, and Dan, uh, well, you do a, a couple of different things, but I mean, you're you're best known for working with Cast, the um, Social Good Tech Accelerator. But you're more here today with your Catalyst hat on. So maybe you could start sort of just explaining a bit about what that is and kind of what you've been doing in these early stages of of responding to the COVID nineteen pandemic. A- absolutely. Thank you. Well, well, Catalyst is a a collective of digital organisations, data organisations, design organisations, foundations and charities and the UK government trying to find a a collective response to how we can support the sector um, in this current crisis. Um, For the last year or so, Catalyst has been a a, um, a way of trying to bring back collective impact where data, digital design meets the needs of, of charities and the way in which they can support their communities. Um, and for the past year or so, we've been developing networks and kind of infrastructure, kind of ways of supporting charities with 800 charities over the last year, but um, building on the strength of those relationships and kind of the way in which that works, Catalyst now is trying to understand how we can best support um, hundreds of charities, if not thousands of charities, almost immediately to understand how they can use digital data and design in their work to address significant challenges. Great. And and sort of what what so far have has your role been um in kind of uh, responding to what's going on 
in terms of, of the kind of kind of current crisis we find ourselves in? Is it is it sort of I know there are lots of issues around organisations having extremely severe short term funding needs, but there are also kind of other things I think that are interesting about how we coordinate some of the activity that is already happening and the resources that are coming flooding in. So kind of what, which bits of those are you focusing on? Yeah, all of them. <laughs> so if I break down uh, perhaps kind of the three big things that, that Catalyst is doing. So the first is, I would call it insights, because we're collecting um, in the most open and kind of transparent way as much of the, under, the, the data and information around the needs of the sector as, as possible. And that's data that's coming from organisations like NCBO and SCBO and Small Charities Coalition, plus Deep Research. And that's um, been kind of aggregated so that as a, as a sector, we can have a view of what the most significant needs are. So that, so that individually and collectively we can prioritize those needs and, and address them that that's the first and, and from a catalyst perspective we'll then look at that, that kind of needs data and think how can the the best uh, capacity of digital data design best be used to address the, those those needs so that that's the first piece um the, the second is is called capacity is mapping the uh, mapping the existing resources the teams the organizations who have digital data and design expertise and how they can provide support to address those needs uh, and the intention of bringing those two things together is in this last piece, which is called a response, which is kind of mobilising the response, linking the best place capacity to the highest priority needs. Um, that sounds really kind of highfalutin across those three areas. But essentially, if we don't have really good insight into the, the needs of the sector, then uh, in a way that's collective, then we're going to respond in a piecemeal way, uh, perhaps to things that are less important than, than, than others. If we don't have a really good kind of view of the, the capacity of the resources that, and the support that's available and the teams that are available, then we're going to risk unnecessary, unnecessary duplication. And, and one of the real values of Catalyst being a collection, not just of teams and charities, but also of funders, it means as we put together those responses, we can have the best placed teams with the highest priority needs and fund them to find those solutions in a way that can support much wider, um, wider use rather than just kind of one charity at a time. And for me, that's the bit that gets most exciting is that we're doing this in a very kind of open and collective way, which means that we're beginning to kind of build the infrastructure that allows us to respond collectively to the challenges as they're identified. Yeah, I mean, it sounds fascinating. It's one of the one of the things I mean, looking, taking a long view of kind of uh, philanthropy or voluntary action as a whole is that is that it isn't noted generally for its degree of coordination, because it's one of those things that's kind of it, it's driven by the the individual desires of people or kind of single organizations working in, in isolation and actually what you get is a lot of duplication or or people kind of working sometimes at cross purposes or not kind of maximizing the value of what they do and obviously yeah I mean it sounds like helping organizations to coordinate could really go a long way in in addressing some of those issues in terms of how that actually manifests into into changing behavior is it just kind of with the organizations that are part of the whole um kind kind of catalyst umbrella at the moment or are you finding ways to use the information that you're getting to inform others i guess i guess two parts actually the first is the catalyst network is kind of open and grow and we've seen a huge response already of charities and these supports coming into come to, to, to the network of digital agencies and teams who are looking to provide that support coming into it too and other funders as well um I guess one one of the values of the kind of the insights piece to begin with is recognizing that if we can kind of everyone has lots of different views of the challenges and the needs that are emerging but if we can kind of bring them together we can contextualize them or we can have a richer kind of deeper data set that, can, that more people can interrogate more people can, can look at and then catalyst itself is then prioritizing that based on where we think digital data design can best address those needs 
but because we have that collected data set, it can also be used by others well beyond the, the, the Catalyst network to use within their own work. I suppose one example, although they're, they're firmly part of Catalyst, is NCBO, where we, we know from the data that clearly one of the biggest challenges that charities are facing is huge shortfalls in, fund, in, in funding, worrying about how to uh, you know, ensure people have salaries and they can continue delivering their services. Well, parts of that isn't something that, that digital can, can really help with. But NCBO are really well placed to take that insight and to present it to those who can help. And so, and so, uh, the um, both the kind of the capacity mapping and the insight work is absolutely kind of targeted at creating something that many many people can use. And then the Catalyst Network itself is then thinking specifically about the opportunities and the role of digital data and design in providing the best the best solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of that that latter point, I mean. In a way, it feels as though the, the current situation we find ourselves in when everybody's kind of stuck in their home, working from home or self-isolating, actually people who are accustomed to that and may work in a, in a digital way and, and are able to kind of continue doing design work might be very well placed to actually continue to do meaningful work. Are you finding that, that those sorts of people in your networks um, kind of are in high demand? And are, are you doing anything to kind of draw on on their capacity at the moment because it strikes me there might be quite a lot of kind of potential untapped capacity at the moment that could be there could be a sort of matchmaking role of putting them in in touch with organizations that could uh could make use of those skills it's it's exactly that and i think um many of the many of the arguments have been made within the cashless network for for over a year now about the opportunities to use digital data design to become a more responsive and resilient sector um, and, and now being played out in many ways that the, the, the organizations that are familiar with these ways of working that have thought about how people in their in their communities are using digital are able to respond to them more, more quickly um, and yet we've also now got this capacity of people who are familiar with those ways of working and they can support charities uh, over the last few weeks you know, there was a huge rush maybe kind of two weeks ago as charities were trying to understand what business continuity looks like so how you can use Zoom or other video conferencing calls, how you access files when you work from home, all those sorts of things. We're now seeing lots of, um, kind of demand for spot around moving services online to either be wholly online or to be blended services and all the challenges that come with that. And then and the next kind of iteration of that, the next kind of phase of that is not just how do we do this stuff at a distance online, but how do we do that well? And I think it's it's that that last part, which is how we can learn from the from the communities within Catalyst who do this stuff well already who have great expertise in kind of supporting charities to do it. And when we do it well, it's not just supporting individual charities to respond, to, to start using digital and data and design in their work, but it also be, it's doing it in a way which creates essentially a new infrastructure for other charities and other organisations to, to use as part of their response. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I, uh, I guess it's sort of going to what you, you say there. It strikes me a lot of organisations, as you say, have had to sort of suddenly pivot to working online in a way that, that many of them might not have been accustomed to. And there's kind of there's one set of challenges which are just about trying to help them in the immediate short term to, to do that. And then there's a whole load of kind of medium and longer term questions about whether to what extent they continue using those tools or a blend of those tools and, and kind of offline tools what what's the sort of division at the moment in terms of your thinking and resources between just helping them kind of find out how to use zoom in the immediate short term and thinking through hang on a minute you know how how might we kind of reshape what we do the other side of this crisis i i think um in terms of how we're it, it's it's both concurrently and it's something that um uh the kind of the tech for good community 
done for a long time, which is how you balance kind of short-term needs with long-term aspirations. Um, at, the, at the moments, you're right, there's, there's so much demand for, for what we might consider kind of relatively kind of basic digital skills or, or kind of basic infrastructure and how to use it well. In fact, one of the first things that, that was, was shared from, from Small Charities Coalition, a whole suite of resources around how to kind of choose the best video conferencing and really simply how, how to use it and then how to use it well. And there, there's still absolutely demand for that, but there's also now more and more resources to support that, that support that, that kind of demand. It, it's, it's the next bit, I think, which is um, where there's a particular opportunity and, and the, 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 the reason there's such an opportunity is you, for, the, for the next few months, who knows how long, many of these services are going to have to be delivered online or at least in a blended way using you know, new volunteers or, or new routes to support those who are most vulnerable. The opportunity is the way in which we start solving those problems. It is creating the, the sorts of open and shared infrastructure that allows our sex to become more responsive. And, and the reason that's so important, I was, I was kind of reflecting on the conversation you had with Fran and Will about this being a, a, a once in a generation crisis or a generation defining crisis. I think that's right. But we also have lots of weak signals and pretty hard signals for, from the environmental groups that are saying this kind of responding to huge crises is going to become something that's perhaps more, more going to happen more often. And for, to ensure that, that charities and, and civil se sector can continually respond to these changes and, and create the most vital kind of support for our communities and individuals means that the way in which we address these challenges now has to do it has to be done in a way that ensures we can we can do it again yeah absolutely i think that you know as people i mean i don't think most people are able to to think you know ahead to the medium term at the moment let alone the longer term but i do think we need to start talking and thinking as you say about questions of how we you know restructure or equip civil society or the charity sector to have resilience against these kinds of these kinds of shocks in the future and and also i think how we make sure that we have more of an ongoing capacity for foresight so that we don't get taken by surprise in in quite the way that we seem to have been by this particular crisis which you know maybe is kind of unprecedented in nature and scale but actually um i was talking to cassie robinson and the other day from lottery fund about this and, and we were sort of saying actually you know, lots of people have been saying civil society should be playing more of a role in kind of foresight and spotting weak signals. And actually, this seems like a kind of argument in favour of that, that being ever more important than, than before. So it'll be interesting to see whether funders and others start kind of thinking about some of that uh, medium and longer term uh, stuff as well as, as the immediate short term. I, I think that, that that's absolutely right. And, it, and it's worth, I think it's worth saying that one of the reasons that, that catalysts collective being able to respond so quickly to this and to start thinking about those kind of medium-term long-term challenges is because there are sets of kind of relationships and foundations and activities that have come about because many 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 funders are already thinking about this stuff and it certainly takes time and there's now so much more urgency and and, uh, and focus on it but the, the organizations that that founded uh, founded catalyst are those who who are aware that the significant pressures on the sector from from new behaviors around digital from, from the kind of potential of, of new shocks means we have to find ways for the sector to be more resilient and more responsive to change. And so whilst um, Catalyst set up with a five-year ambition to support something like 40,000 charities, and that now has become a, an ambition to support at least 40,000 charities over the next five months or so, the foundations mean that, we, we, that, that, that there is already some commitment and some, some work to thinking about these, kind of these longer-term shocks uh, and how we can respond to them. And luckily, or, or 
<laughs> through wonderful planning, that means there's now this collective who's able to help charities respond to it in the short term too. Yeah, and that, that's great. One of, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, actually, in terms of your, the work you're doing or thinking about, one of one of the things that is not unique to to this current crisis, but again seems to have been brought to the forefront, is the, the increasing prominence of sort of informal voluntary activity and new organisational forms, sort of networks and more kind of grassroots movements where people are kind of connected uh, on on the internet or kind of using uh, communications technology of that kind. And there are sort of questions about how that fits in with the traditional sector and how funders interact with them. Is that is that something that the the organisations involved in Catalyst are thinking about and how what that might look like after we get out the other side of this crisis? Yeah, absolutely. In terms of what the um, in terms of what's going on right now, that there's a, a recognition, there's a, a new sorts of relationships required, or, or at least put under the spotlight between um, kind of movements and, and kind of people led uh, activity formal organisations like charities, but also uh, local authorities and councils, all of whom are trying to figure out how to sense and respond to this kind of changing environment. And there's probably even a, a stronger recognition now because there's so much um, f- like physical separation between those and who can act in what ways that, that these new forms of relationships are beginning to, to, to be created. Um, charities desperately now looking for new ways of mobilising the volunteers that have come to them because they have local connections, they no longer have local authorities doing the same. And I, I don't think um, I, I would be bold enough in what are we week three, week four to say how I think this will play out. But what I do think is already quite, quite perhaps obvious is that the civil society and the structures that we had um, with the estimated 10 billion shortfall that's going to happen. But however it bounces back, it will not be the same as it was. The question is, how do we bring about the kind of the most preferable future? How do we bring out the civil society that we want to see? And that is about identifying kind of what, how those relationships can work now within crisis and how we can sustain them beyond it. But then also kind of what are the new forms of, uh, kind of infrastructure or new forms of, kind of uh, connectivity and collaborations, which we can make best use of within a crisis now, but also that we put time into making sure they sustain beyond it too. Mm, absolutely. Um, there, there was something else I wanted to ask you about in terms of the, the work you're doing as well. Is it, it strikes me there's there's a sort of a vibrant existing field of, of tech for good and also kind of an increasing number of civil society organisations and funders understanding the potential of using technology beneficially. But th- there is, you know, there has been for a while a kind of other strand of work, which is organisations recognising some of the kind of negative unintended consequences of tech. And, and f- up to now, it seemed to me that was quite a sort of niche interest and actually that bothered me slightly because I think there are more civil society organizations that should engage with it but it but one flip side of the fact that a lot of organizations are suddenly having to kind of pile into a digital environment and work in that way it strikes me is firstly they might become more aware of those issues but also I wonder whether there are some of the risks associated with organizations using online tools without kind of understanding some of the challenges around data ownership and, and cybersecurity and privacy and those kinds of things might become more pressing. Are, th- are those things that you're hearing anybody be concerned about? Or are you sort of thinking about how you might inform organisations that aren't used to this environment? P- people are definitely worried about that already. Um, s- some using platforms they're not familiar with, just because that's where their, their communities now are. Uh, some thinking about, uh, I mean, clearly safeguarding is a huge issue, um, whether that's delivering a service online or connecting to new volunteers who, who, who are now available and you don't know them. Um, and then also that you're absolutely right runs to t- data and, and particularly unintended consequences of very rapidly creating services that, that um, can help you in a crisis situation. But then also you have to think about how they sustain or what happens in, in the longer term. 
So there's lots of kind of concern and people kind of worrying about it. Um, so you're right that there's lots of support that there's a there's a, um, a great site as part of Catalyst called Digital Candle, which uh, digitalcandle.org.uk, which is a group of uh, over 100 volunteers who have done this stuff before within the sector who are available just to talk to any charity who are trying to make sense of this stuff, just giving, giving some time to help them think this stuff through. So there's lots of kind of short term examples that there's more on the Catalyst website of short term support. I think I think the um, the, uh, that there's a traditional role of the charity sector which is representing those who are furthest from power and holding holding kind of power to account. As technology is having, especially now, even more influence over our lives and is providing even more of a kind of the landscape in which we're operating, there's a role for charities to continue to fulfill that role, but in a new way, which is how do we think about the unintended consequences? How do we hold tech companies to account and make sure it works for everyone? And how do we ensure that as a sector, we have the strongest voice in representing those communities? And as we think about kind of the, the way in which technology is changing our sector, one absolutely is how we fulfill that role and the role of leaders within our sector. So there's a that this kind of very rapid experience of making sense of digital data and design within our organisations and within our work is going to have some consequences where we're going to have to reflect on how we can now have a bigger role in ensuring we have the infrastructure where civil society can play out well. Yeah, absolutely. Amen to, to that. I agree wholeheartedly. And, and obviously, we talked there, you know, about some of the, the potential challenges, and there are going to be a lot of challenges for, uh, you know, civil society over the coming months, I would imagine, and beyond that. But what have you seen so far in this kind of immediate short term period that most gives you hope or optimism that, that civil society is, is, is going to, to kind of get through this, this storm and, and hopefully come out stronger on the other side? there are so many things and i know there's so much kind of worry around there but when when um there are so many examples of of new people ready to volunteer putting their hand up to support their communities being worried about others who perhaps wouldn't have gone through traditional volunteering routes but are now seeing this huge surge and that's that's really exciting that's a a new way of thinking about civil society we've got uh, within from a capitalist lens we've got all of these organizations over 50 in the last week or so kind of signing up to say that we want to provide our capacity to support amazing charities to do work through digital tech and design and and that again shows this kind of this swell of people who want to provide their support to, to kind of really meaningful and purposeful work and actually if i can give one uh, very specific example in the last few days i um was involved in a meeting with with uh, five different digital agencies who were looking at a piece of work to, um, to, to support a charity. Uh, and one of the most heartwarming things was as they discussed openly how to, how to respond to this, four of them stood back and pointed to another organisation and said, you're the best place to do this. We're going to focus our resources elsewhere. And at a time where organisations are worried about their own future and, and you know, payroll and worried about how they're going to survive, for organisations to be more committed to a, to a common goal and a collective ambition than individual or organisational needs um, is something that, that I think helps recognise that we're now going to drive a new way of kind of uh, of working together. And, uh, and and it's generally, we're seeing examples already. And the more examples we can see, the stronger we can rebuild civil society. Absolutely. And that's a very optimistic note on which to finish. Um, just just remain to say thanks ever so much, Dan, for finding some time to, to come on the podcast. It's been, it's been great to have a chance to to chat to you um and again you know it would be great at some point sort of further down the line when we're at the other side of this maybe to to catch up and get you on so we can have a conversation that's not quite so so dominated by coronavirus i'd love that thank you very much (laughs) 
This conversation is with Dan Flusky. Uh, Dan is the Head of Policy at the Institute of Fundraising uh, and a returning guest to the Giving Thought podcast, which puts him in a very small and elite band of people. Uh, and Dan and I caught up to talk about the impact that the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and the social distancing and social isolation measures that have been put in place have had on the fundraising world uh, and some of the challenges that it was presenting both uh, in the short term and potentially over the longer term. Um, I should warn that the audio quality on this one isn't brilliant, had some kind of issues with the connection uh, and using uh, Zoom to record. Um, I've done my best to, to tidy it up and hopefully it is okay, um, but you know, if there are any problems I can only apologise. Um, so without further ado, here is Dan. Great. So I'm here with Dan Flusky, uh, Head of Policy at the IOF. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you, Rod. Thanks for inviting me on. Oh, it's great to have you. Um, yeah, basically, I just um, as I've been doing lots of these conversations, I just wanted to get uh, a sense from you of how the, the coronavirus crisis has been affecting you and also kind of your members and, and fundraising as a whole so far. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I'll start with kind of how it's affecting our, our members and, and, and the sector, I guess. Um, I mean, I think as soon as um, things like the social distancing measures came in and the subsequent uh, postponing of large-scale events, charities started getting very worried, um, of course, and obviously I'll, I'll probably talk in the main uh, about charities in relation to their voluntary income and the amount of money they're raising. Um, there's obviously huge elements of challenges and importance around services and individuals and beneficiaries and staff, which um, are arguably more important. But most of our members and the work we do is obviously around the voluntary income side. And I think we saw as soon as the marathon was cancelled, that really was the kind of lightning rod of thinking, well, this is serious um, and this is not something which is just a kind of little bump in the road. Um, but it's probably the start of something which has actually turned out to probably be the biggest crisis, if you like, in charity, um, in the charity sector that we will have, uh, ever really known, um, to this extent. And the financial side of things in terms of voluntary income is really, really scary. Um, organizations kind of almost overnight having to wipe off uh, you know, big figures of what income they thought they could make through events, through public fundraising, through their charity shops, through a whole range of other activities. And obviously, every time you're having to recalculate your income, you're thinking about the services, that that means that you can't run the research, that you can't do, the beneficiaries you aren't going to be able to reach. Um, so it is a really tough time at the moment. And we um, had done some work with Charity Finance Group and NCBO trying to get an, an initial kind of estimate, if you like, around what the what charities were reforecasting as a result of all this. And the really kind of stark figures that came from that was essentially charities probably estimating uh, almost 50%, was about 48% of voluntary income. They were kind of having to wipe off their books for the year, which is a a huge amount when you look at the amount of money that's raised in the sector every year. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, you know, the challenge for a lot of those organisations is that it's 
is not necessarily money that they can they can recoup if that's an annual fundraising event and the fundraising's gone for that year they if they can survive through the short-term challenges they can do the event next year but that that was next year's money which seems you know uh, it's going to be very difficult yeah yeah no absolutely it's not just a matter of okay well we'll hold off on that and you know we can get that money later in the year um partly you've already paid for quite a lot of those events so you're going to potentially have to pay twice for something so your net return is going to be lower but you know charities in the name will have a whole program of events and activity and campaigns planned throughout the year so if you're having to put everything on hold you can't just kind of restart it all and then over the year say well we're going to make everything back but it's going to come three months later it can't just all be deferred lots of it is going to be lost you know especially from um, events that you know, you were planning on holding in the spring and the summer, you know, you're probably not going to be able to hold them kind of in the autumn and winter. Or if you are, then you're pushing other events out of the calendar as well. So, you know, we are looking at, you know, a, a serious um, crisis, if you like, in terms of voluntary income. And that's why we've been really vocal alongside others about saying, actually, this is something where the government needs to step in and provide the support that charities will need, both for responding to increasing demand in services right now, but so that when we get through this, the charities that we have relied on in the past, we're going to be able to be there to rely on in the future as well. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to kind of uh, give the impression that fundraisers aren't doing anything um, and that charities aren't doing anything in response. You know, we've seen some fantastic, innovative, creative, new campaigns get off the ground, emergency appeals launch, some really nice examples of support from uh, philanthropists, from grant funders, from corporate partners as well. There is stuff happening and there's going to be some great stuff that we see in terms of donations from the public, people being generous at this time and other people stepping up as well. The problem is the cliff edge that we've faced is so severe that even if some of those appeals and that new work is successful, it's not going to make up for the huge losses that we're likely to see. It will help to mitigate to some extent, but in no way can it kind of put us back on the kind of path that we thought we were going to be you know, six weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's it's important to to raise that that issue and the the kind of reality that if people want to help those organisations to survive to the to the point where they are able to kind of uh do fundraising in the way that they were before then they are going to need short-term support and that is going to involve action uh from government um absolutely and and as you say it's kind of uh, giving from the public and philanthropists and trusts and foundations and others can certainly help and will have to be part of that that whole process but can't replace a network of sort of 50 or 60 charity shops for instance or a you know involvement in the London Marathon as in terms of fundraised income and um, in terms of what you're saying there about organizations you know are continuing to fundraise and I'm sure many are on the sort of positive action side what are you seeing from some of your members about how they are kind of trying to innovate in response to the fact that they're faced with this incredibly difficult different working environment where they're having to do everything remotely and digitally are there kind of examples where they're coming up with new ideas or where they're learning from others that have sort of done things in this way before yeah a bit of both i think i mean so obviously um there is a kind of uh element of necessity kind of uh bringing in innovations that maybe you wouldn't have thought about 
previously, both in terms of ways that teams are working, but also what they see as possible. Um, so I think there's probably organisations that are maybe doing their first ever proper digital campaigns, social media work in a way that they haven't done kind of before because they maybe would have done those as a nice add-on, which was always complementary to a physical activity, a physical fundraising event. And whereas now it's actually where the digital side is going to have to be fundamental. It can't, it, it's not the complement, it is the thing. Um, so I think we're seeing people doing lots around um, digital fundraising, reaching out to supporters. I think it's actually a time when quite a lot are going back to um, kind of maybe forms of communication engagement, which have maybe fallen off in terms of what might be thought of as, you know, it's not new, it's not exciting, it's not shiny, but using the telephone has really come back into fashion, hasn't it? You know, whether that's team working or calling up supporters, talking to people on the phone, you know, giving your major donors a call, giving your supporters a call, talking about what they're doing, keeping in touch, I think has really kind of come back as well. So the key thing, I think, is to keep fundraising where you can. Obviously, we can't do public fundraising where we can't do... Um, you know, physical fundraising events, challenge events, but we can do things virtually, we can do things digitally, we can email people, we can call people. Obviously, the caveat of having the right kind of, um, as long as you're doing that in the right way, data protection and so on. But we can contact people, we can reconnect with supporters. It's really important to keep asking. Um, one of the things which kind of came up over the last week or so, which I've seen, was a kind of and is it actually okay to be fundraising at this time, given you know the kind of national crisis and emergency we're in? Is it okay? And absolutely, it's okay. It's not just okay, but it's needed. Um, you know, charities are needed now in a way they haven't been needed before. We're going to be needed to get through the crisis. We're going to be needed when we get over the other side to help um, individuals and communities respond to kind of the after effects of this as well, both in terms of social and community stuff, but also the economic impact that's going to come um, following following the kind of health side of things. And when, when there's great need, that's the time when we need to be asking. We can't just go into our shelves. We need to be out there talking to supporters and making that ask. But we need to be sensitive about the way that we do that. We can't just be, you know, you can't. what would be wrong would just be saying, well, we're going to go ahead with the campaigns that we had already planned and the wording of the campaigns that we already had planned. We need to be sensitive to that. We need to be phrasing things in a slightly different way to recognise that people are going to be receiving that at a time when they're also worried about their health, their jobs, you know, and the crisis that's going on. So it's about doing it sensitively. It's not about, you know, just kind of putting the, um, putting the blinds up and shutting up shop and not doing any activity because we are needed and charities are going to have to raise the money they can to be able to um, support those individuals and communities that are needing that support right now and in the months ahead. Absolutely. And I mean, that definitely echoes something I've heard from others sort of making the point that um, the, the nature of this crisis might be different to, to many other crises in which you would look to to sort of charity or, or philanthropy where you're often there's a group of people affected by it and a group of people largely unaffected and you're sort of asking the one to help the other whereas actually 
we're all affected by this to to a greater or lesser extent so you have to be very sensitive to that when you're asking people to help others but i but i guess also we are also more aware of a sort of sense of collectivism and and mutuality maybe i think it's really interesting to see that coming through so i sort of i'll be interested to see whether fundraisers kind of adapt the way that they're talking to people about supporting during during this crisis along those kinds of lines of you know it, we're all in it but there are also some people who are being affected yeah more than others. absolutely i think that's right i mean everyone is affected but not everybody's affected equally um and um you know for some people this is a more a you know kind of an annoyance frustration and inconvenience for other people they've lost their jobs they've lost their livelihoods they're having you know a whole range of other problems as well so we need to be absolutely sensitive to that um and you know i think we've seen with you know some of the appeals that have already happened the national emergency trust response um the response that we've had through not just the formal kind of volunteering side um but the informal community civic side of things i think we're seeing that level of kind of community spirit that level of wanting to be particip- to participate with other people with your communities um is you know is something which is remarkable probably to some people who had who wouldn't really have thought about that previously i think one of the things in fundraising and is obviously it's not just about the money it's about the connections to people to causes that feeling of being part of something that's bigger than you and about making change in the world and it's that connectivity i think which is going to be really key at the moment this isn't just about give us your money at the time of crisis this is about connecting people that engagement with something that's beyond your front door and i think working that through so that we get that spirit that continues after this crisis is really important because we've heard quite a lot um about you know after this everything's going to be different politics is going to be different but economics is going to be different and we think about whose jobs are important in society is going to be different all of that but I don't think it's just going to happen automatically it's going to happen because of organizations including charities changing the way that we engage with people changing how we communicate with people and being that conduit to actually make some of that happen. so i think it's really important that in those fundraising campaigns that we stop engagement that is going to be about connecting you know you with people in the community yeah absolutely and i think it certainly goes something like it it seems as though the the rise of lots of kind of neighborhood groups and and sort of covid mutual network and people having individual crowdfunders and things shows that uh, both people want that sense of connection but also there's a kind of premium on on a sense of participation i mean people want to feel like they're involved and in doing something and i think you know this is something we've we've i know we've both sort of talked about before this this happened that that was a change already uh, sort of out there that one could identify but it does seem as though it's going to be accelerated and it, it will change the way that, that charities kind of engage with with or look to engage with their supporters in the future um i just wanted to ask as well kind of 
in in terms of you know we talked about the the short term challenges lots of organizations are facing in terms of finances and fundraising do you do you think kind of when we come out the other side of this you mentioned that people are sort of saying things will have changed do you think there are signs of of any longer term challenges that we need to start thinking about at the moment or or do we just you know need to keep our focus on the immediate here and now it's a tough question but i think the the scale of the problems at the moment are probably meaning that a huge amount of kind of people's um, people's attention bandwidth capacity has to be focused on what's going to get us through the next few weeks um, or the next two months or however long this kind of immediate bit um, rises uh, is, is 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 in place because you know it's this this kind of cliff edge kind of immediate drop in income across the board is something which I don't think we would have been able to imagine before. We might have been able to imagine, you know, a re kind of another 2008 financial impact. We might have been able to um, imagine another fundraising kind of uh, crisis, if you like, from 2015. I don't think we could have ever imagined almost everything going wrong all at the same time. Um, So I think that navigating through the first is going to have to be the priority for so, so many. Um, the rebuilding the other side is going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's not going to rebound quickly, I don't think, because let's say when we get through the um, when we get through the uh, the coronavirus in terms of looking at it around keeping people safe and healthy, and protecting people from harm the wider economic side is going to take a longer time to get through as well. Some of the businesses that have gone bust, some people that have lost their jobs, people that have salaries, all of those kind of things. I don't think that's going to come back straight away. So there's probably a fancy economic term for it. Um, but in my head, I'm kind of seeing like a Nike tick, which is an immediate kind of drop, uh, an immediate cliff edge drop, and then a slow on recovery um, to get us somewhere back to where we have been. I can't see that this time next year we're going to be able to kind of sit back and think, well, that was really hard for a few months, but everything's okay now. I think it's probably going to more fundamentally change organisations over how they work, but also in terms of some of the fundraising activity that we do, both in the way that we engage talk to supporters and to the public but also things like well you know kind of if grant funders continue to have to step up like they've been stepping up in the immediate time how much money are they going to have this time at this point next year how much money will corporate partners have to be able to do kind of partnerships and corporate donations this time next year so while some of those things are really good that they're happening now it's it's about managing the short-term thing. That can't just be the basis for assuming that everything's going to be all right in 12 months' time. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right. The scale of the challenges in the short term is it's huge. And, you know, I wouldn't want to pretend that, that every organisation is going to come through this unscathed because, I, you know, I don't think anybody should imagine they're not. Um, but, I mean... Obviously, acknowledging that the, the immediate short term does look problematic and challenging. What what have you seen so far in terms of what your members are doing, or kind of more broadly across the sector, that gives you cause for hope and optimism about 
the you know our ability to kind of come through this storm and and hopefully come out the other side. Well, so, I mean, I think you've seen a huge amount of organisations um, trying to be nimble where they can, be flexible where they can, put in place new plans, thinking about their supporters and understanding really right if we're going to go out and reach out to our supporters now to make an extra ask, how do we do that in a way which is sensitive and appropriate to their situation at the moment? And I think that stuff's really, really heartening to see that that kind of real thought and sensitivity is going into some of the fundraising campaigns. Um, I think we're seeing a huge amount of sharing and collaboration and cooperation that um, maybe some happened before, but I didn't see it in the same way. So whether that's at a kind of infrastructure membership body scale, so you know the work that we've been doing with other membership bodies around the, the uh, campaigns and championing um, the charity sector and calling on government support, whether that's people, um, you know, kind of saying on social media, look, I've got some time. My freelance work's fallen through. I'm happy to go and kind of help and have a call and mentor people or give my time for free. People putting out kind of free templates and resources and guidance and advice, doing free webinars, doing all of those kind of virtual events and often, you know, for really low cost or free to help share that. And I think that's something to actually feel quite proud about the way that our charity sector and our fundraising community is coming together at this time of crisis. It's not dividing. It's not trying to be kind of cutthroat. It really is about trying to support people. And I think that, again, is something that gives me hope for the future. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're talking actually kind of completely coincidentally on the day that the Institute of Fundraising became the Chartered Institute of Fundraising. Um, we, we obviously haven't had quite the same celebration that we maybe would have planned to have about that change but that element around uh, you know what's important about the chartered institute isn't the name of the organization it's recognizing the level of professionalism that there is in our sector the professional fundraisers the, the knowledge the skills the values behaviors that they put into their work every day that comes from you know, kind of learning and professional development and that basis will give us the right foundation to be able to kind of get through this and to be able to succeed the other side because we know that fundraisers are hugely committed, they're creative, they're collaborative, they're supportive and it's that element which is why I think that there is some kind of you know, light at the end of the tunnel because it's will kind that will rebound and it's going to do everything that they can to the causes they work so hard for. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, I share that cause for optimism and, you know, belated congratulations on the chartered status. I forgot to say that. But um, listen, I won't take up any more of your time, Dan, because I know you're really busy at the moment. Just to say thanks ever so much for, for coming on the podcast and, and kind of sharing your, your thoughts and insights on what's been happening so far. Um, and certainly, you know, once we get out the uh, other side of this, let's maybe uh, catch up uh, once the dust settles and, and see how things have panned out. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much, Rob okay great so i'm here with david ainsworth hi david hi there how you doing i'm not too bad thank you um 
Yeah, and I just thought it would be good to to have a quick um, catch up and chat just to get your view. I know you've been thinking a lot about what's going on with the, the kind of COVID-19 crisis so far and how it's affecting the charity sector. So just to get your quick take on on what's going on and sort of what some of the main challenges have been. Yeah, OK. So I've mostly been trying to look at it and, and trying to map out uh, exactly what the impact has been on different parts of the sector. And we're doing that partly just looking at the data and trying to project the likely kind of losses. And it's pretty frightening, really, the scale of the impact that we're seeing across the charity sector on and how differently different types of charities have, have been affected. Um, and we're seeing some charities very, very badly affected indeed, and others really able to withstand it relatively well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and which, what, what are the sort of differentials in there that are making a big difference between different types of organisation? So I think the biggest thing we're seeing is that we talk about the charity sector as if it was quite a unified entity, whereas in fact it's a collection of very different organisations delivering different types of service and using very, very different business models. So I, I've tended to think that when you look at different types of charity, the business model, the way that the money flows into the charity is the biggest um, kind of denominator of how charities actually tend to behave. And people tend to think about charities as primarily fundraising organisations. But in fact, that's only a fifth to a quarter of the income of the charity sector. We've got the uh, a very significant amount of money obviously comes in from government. Charities actually make more money delivering um, services directly to the public, selling things directly to the public than they do from fundraising and donations. And then there's a real kind of mix of other sources of income. Money comes in from investment. It goes out in grants. Uh, charities make a lot of money from, from membership. A lot of charities are in a position where all of the money flows to them from one single um, from one single source, where you've just got one kind of major benefactor that, that pours all of the money into the charity. I was just going to say, I guess on that front, you know, that major benefactor is likely to be, in most cases, uh, I mean, either a government department or more likely a grant-making trust. And so those, those organisations dependent on the trust and or grant-making entity in question might be the ones that are relatively well insulated. But even then, the demands on grant-makers at the moment are so vast that most of them are struggling to to keep up with it, from what I've seen. And that's true. And in actually, in a lot of cases, the benefactor is a grant-making trust. If we think particularly of corporate foundations and individual foundations, uh, we, we tend to think of foundations in the charity sector as funded primarily by investment, but there's almost as much money flowing into them from uh, gifts from individuals. But that money tends to come in the end from pretty much the, main, the same source as investments. It's still coming from the stock market. It's just then flowing into the pockets of a major benefactor, either a corporate um, organization with a corporate foundation or an individual with a, uh, an individual's foundation. And those those individuals are seeing um, obviously quite straightened circumstances in some cases. And we can imagine that in a lot of cases, corporates are going to be pulling their funding to their corporate foundation pretty sharpish as they find themselves in a completely unprecedented uh, financial position. So I guess if we were to look through those different sources of income, we've seen that fundraising has been very badly hit, much worse actually than I suspected to start with. And that's the cancellation of fundraising events. Uh, that's the inability to, to follow up on asking through a lot of channels. Um, kind of spontaneous giving seems to have dried up a lot as people have obviously felt that their own circumstances are quite difficult, been quite nervous about giving to charities. But the, the real absolute collapse obviously has been in, um, 
services to the general public. Charities deliver almost all of those services face to face. And we're seeing in a lot of cases, 90% of the income of those charities just disappearing overnight. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I guess the you know, as those income sources dry up, if for some organizations, I guess it's pop- possible to essentially kind of go go dormant or put themselves on ice and they can take advantage of things like the government's furloughing schemes. I mean, if you're a museum or, or something like that, I guess you can just kind of not open the museum for a while. But for other s- charities, it seems like the real problem is that they're finding that, that kind of challenge on the funding side, but at the same time, the demand for their services hasn't gone down. If anything, it's increased. Yeah, obviously, we're saying that the the impact, the, the government schemes, whilst they're very generous, have obviously not been designed with charities in mind. And in a lot of cases, charities are struggling to really to, uh, gain access to them. If they're not primarily viewed as trading entities, then they can't access the business loan scheme. Uh, they can potentially access the furlough, as you say, but furlough only works if... Um, your income's gone down and the demand for your services has gone down. As you rightly point out, in a lot of cases, these people have seen income disappear, but demand for their services has risen exponentially in some cases. It's doubled in a lot of cases. We're seeing just a vast increase in, in service provision. And I, and I guess with that, Phil, I noticed this is something that you've been kind of pointing out and talking about and thinking through on, on Twitter and elsewhere, that, that, as you say, that furloughing scheme is not designed for charities but one of the particular sticking points is that currently it doesn't seem possible for people who are on furlough to volunteer again or work on a voluntary basis for for their employer um and so people are sort of trying to think whether you can work that around and have you know job swaps and these kinds of things but those also seem problematic from the point of view of the tax authorities i mean do you think this is a a kind of unintended consequence that that just needs to be dealt with yeah, obviously, it's an, an unintended consequence, isn't it? I mean, I think we're saying that, that essentially, I feel that ideologically, this government is maybe not focused on the charity sector. It, it doesn't intrinsically kind of get how the sector works. It works in much more of a kind of uh, a market-based kind of instrumentalist way. And and the so maybe the charity sector hasn't been at the forefront of its thinking. Obviously, it, it's just it's had to design this system in a tearing hurry, essentially, is the problem. And... Create And the idea is that it's focused on business. And in a business, if your income goes down, demand for your services go down, they go hand in hand. With the charity sector, that's just not the case. So it hadn't occurred to them that there might be organisations where demand remains, but the income disappears. It feels to me as if, if there was the will, you could relatively easily create a workaround for this aimed purely at the charity sector. Because... Government's very, very used to giving exemptions or amending schemes for organisations with a charity number. It's happened many times with different tax reliefs and so on and so forth. And it shouldn't be that hard, I think, to say, if you have a charity number, a slightly different scheme applies to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I mean, I think that's, you know, one kind of quick win, essentially, that the government could have, although I don't think it would necessarily solve all of the issues with the, the funding shortfalls. I'm sure you're not suggesting that it would. Um, but kind of, do you do you think apart from the that just sort of immediate huge looming challenge of just dealing with the fact that they don't they aren't able to get money in through the door? There are for those organisations that are able to get through that short term storm, there are going to be other potential implications or challenges of the situation that we're going through at the moment. And and what do you think those might be? 
Yeah, I mean, I think obviously funding is the single largest problem for for these organisations, and I, I don't think that's really in doubt because I mean, we, the NCBOs talked about there being a four billion shortfall, but that was in twelve weeks, and I have to say, I thought that that was an underestimate. I think if we're going, if this goes on for six months, we're probably looking at more of a 10, 10 billion pound shortfall. Furlough will protect against some of that. But sorry, I'm not answering the question you actually asked, which is the the other challenges that exist. Um, yeah, I, th- I mean, the next challenge is obviously that there's uh, quite a lack of capacity in the voluntary sector around um, reserves and around um, management capacity. For a long time, the voluntary sector has been asked to kind of cut back on its core functions, cut back on its central management. And that creates a difficult scenario when suddenly you have to engage in a rapid change of how you operate things because you simply don't have the number of people there who are able to engage in that kind of decision-making process. And I don't think the charity sector has been terribly well-equipped in digital terms, in terms of the technology that it needs to, to reach out to people. So getting that capacity in place all of a sudden is going to be a very, very challenging thing. And then obviously from there, there's what we've already talked about, which is this rapid rise in demand. And that's going to be very different in different organisations. But I think that um, um, what we're likely to be seeing in terms of uh, these organisations is, is we're going to see some organisations, mental. we've seen it already, mental health organisations in particular, advice services, uh, a number of other services that are working with vulnerable and disadvantaged groups, that they're going to see a huge rise in these people who have been badly affected. And the other problem, obviously, is that those beneficiaries themselves are already hard to reach. They're hard, they're hard to get to. And when you're not allowed to go out and actually find them face to face, then trying to deal with them digitally, when many of them simply don't have a mobile device, is going to be an extremely challenging environment. I mean, it's you can't provide digital services to somebody who doesn't have any digital equipment. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it, it's interesting to think what the sort of forced digital shift for a lot of organisations is going to mean. But as you say, it, it, there's, there are definitely things that people as quickly as possible will need to get back to doing in person and offline. And and that will potentially be a challenge if those those kind of important connections have been severed in the short term. Um, I just, just wanted to ask finally, kind of, you know, we talked a lot about the challenges because it's obviously those are very front of mind for most of us at the moment. But what, what have you seen so far in the kind of response across the sector that gives you some cause for optimism that civil society is, you know, is going to weather this storm and hopefully kind of come out again the other side reasonably strongly? I think what we're, we're seeing a couple of things here. One is that we're seeing an enormous amount of innovation forced innovation in a lot of cases, but people are having to think on their feet. They're finding new ways to do things, things that have been a problem for a very long time, for a number of years, have suddenly disappeared. Um, We're seeing a transformation in how people approach digital technology. And I think all of that's absolutely fantastic. I think the other thing that that really stands civil society in good stead in the long way, in the long run, going forward, is the impact that this is having on how wider society is uh kind of responding to this we're seeing in spain they've talked about introducing a universal basic income which would be transformative if something similar to that came in here people are the the financial times is talking about the need to 
readdress Britain's compact with its low paid workers. The Financial Times is campaigning on benefits, saying that we need to reassess the benefit system. So I think civil society may find itself in a much more conducive campaigning environment in the aftermath of this. A lot of people will have looked at the fact that they needed their neighbours, they needed state support, that this kind of myth of, of, of a kind of capitalist meritocracy wasn't really quite all it was cracked up, for, up to be. And we're going to find ourselves in a much more communitarian, much more interconnected civil society where I think it's going to be a little bit easier for charity's message that basically we all need to look after each other a little bit better. I think it's that, that message is going to be a little bit easier to get across after this. I you know, I certainly hope so. And it, yeah, I mean, it absolutely uh, kind of echoes things that I've been hearing from others and thinking. And I, I guess, I mean, as ever with these things, I suppose my my sense is that there's an optimistic version of things in which exactly as you say, that's, that's the end result. And there's a, a less good version in which it kind of entrenches some of the the existing challenges but but the challenge i think for the sector is that we need to be quite intentional about pursuing the better version of it so there's there's a job to be done i think giving some thought to the medium and longer term at the same time as we're dealing with the short-term challenges which is is difficult but necessary i think i think that's um, it. Sorry, no i was good i was just i was just going to say uh thanks very much for coming on the podcast but if you have a final word David, that would be great to hear no, I was I was simply going to agree with you and say I think that that's a very important and often overlooked point that if we um, we we need to plan for the long term we need to say okay what are the goals what are the things that we can potentially achieve here I think one of the challenges that faced civil society before this was the idea that we were presenting an entire worldview of how people ought to interact with one another the importance of communities the importance of fairness in our society. We were preaching a very different gospel to, to some of the dominant forces in, in political life and coming together and articulating that with one voice, campaigning at the right level, campaigning for a kind of sea change in behaviour was already a very significant challenge for civil society. Now we've got a real opportunity to, to, to put that on the agenda, to move that forward, to tackle that thinking. And we do need to have a little bit of a think about how we come together and speak with one voice to to talk about those changes and what I think our priorities are. Absolutely, and that's a you know a great note on on which to to finish. So I'm um, just remain to say thanks ever so much for finding some time uh, to come on the podcast. I know everybody's incredibly busy at the moment, um, but certainly um, you know as as the situation settles down, maybe the other side, it would be great to to catch up and get you on again to to talk you know in more depth about some of these things and potentially without COVID nineteen kind of looming quite so large in the mind. Thanks very much. That would be a pleasure. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Dan uh, and to Dan uh, and to David. So it's quite a theme of men whose names begin with D this week uh, for taking the time to, to come on the podcast. It was great to have a chance to, to chat to them all. Um, that's the all of the interviews that we recorded for now. We'll be looking to potentially record some more as the situation develops and there are other people who've got kind of interesting perspectives to bring to bear. Um, if you're interested more broadly in uh, what's going on around COVID-19, philanthropy and civil society, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website and also uh, CAF's uh, developed a very good COVID-19 hub with resources for charities and donors and funders who want to try and do their bit. 
Um, if you've got ideas for people I could talk to on the podcast or things we could talk about, drop us a line at givingthought@cafonline.org. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis or at Philiteracy if you want stuff that's more about academic writing and history of philanthropy. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, share it around as widely as you can, and I'll see you next time. Bye! Bye!